chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Before we jump into the text, though, I'm actually going to read to you verse 10, because I believe verse 10 is really the central idea, the central truth of this passage. Verse 10 of Mark chapter 2, the tag for today's message is whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Mark chapter 2, verse 10 says, but that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. As we journey into the beginning of the second chapter of Mark, we come to the backside of Jesus cleansing the leper. The end of Mark 1 says that after Jesus cleansed the leper, that Jesus was pushed from the city to the outskirts and into the wilderness because crowds and multitudes began to seek him and to come after him in order to receive a miracle. And now in verse 1 of chapter 2, we find that Jesus, after a few days of being in the wilderness, decides to make his way back to Capernaum. If you remember, Capernaum is where Jesus went into the temple and drove out the unclean spirit. Capernaum is the place where Peter's mother-in-law lived, and at Peter's mother-in-law's house where Jesus drove out demons and healed many that were sick. Capernaum really serves as the base of majority of Jesus's public ministry. Look at verse 1 with me. Mark, Mark chapter 2 verse 1 says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. As Jesus journeys back into Capernaum from the wilderness, people find out. And quickly, as Jesus is in the house, probably Peter's mother-in-law's house, crowds and multitudes begin to come to Jesus again. They begin to crowd the house that he was gathered in. If you can imagine this small Palestinian home that's packed with people like sardines. They're pushing up against the wall. It's probably overflowing out into the yard. There's no room for anybody else to get into the house where Jesus is at. By this point in Jesus's public ministry, Jesus most likely would have had three primary groups of people that were seeking after him. He would have had some by this point that seeing his miracles and listening to his message were beginning to believe that quite possibly this man just might be the Messiah. And this group of people would have been pushing in on Jesus to hear his message about the coming kingdom of God. You would have had a second group of people which most likely made up the majority of those that sought after Jesus that didn't come to him as Lord or Messiah, but rather that pressed in on Jesus and tried to get to Jesus because he was merely an intriguing, awesome miracle worker. But then there was another group of people that were present in this house. If you go to Luke's account of this encounter in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, this is how Luke begins. He says, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. By now, in Jesus' public ministry, he was beginning to capture the attention of the religious leaders of the day. 
these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the doctors of law, they, like everybody else, had begun to hear of and see these, the message and the miracles that Jesus was proclaiming. And these leaders of religion began to wonder and worry about this man, this Jesus from Nazareth who has stepped on the scene and people are claiming and he is claiming that he is the Messiah. So now on high alert, these religious leaders come from all over the place in order to examine the life and ministry of Jesus. They're coming to Jesus not to receive a miracle, not because they believe he is the Messiah, but rather to try to disprove Jesus as Messiah. They're watching his life to see if there's anything he does that they can trip him up with. So as these people gather around Jesus with varying motives and purposes, Mark says that Jesus preached the word. That is the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God that the Messiah had arrived and that because of that, the people needed to repent and believe. But as Jesus is in the house preaching to the hearts of men, somewhere on the outside, there is a paralytic in great need. And this morning, we are going to look at the story of this paralyzed man's need and Jesus's response. If you would, just pray with me real quick, and then we'll dive into the text. Dear Lord, we again just come before you this morning, thankful for your word, thankful for the Savior, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text this morning, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would help us, encourage us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity of speech, tell me to be concise, Lord, to say only what you would want me to say, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that I would be little and you would be big, that Christ would be exalted and you would be glorified, Lord. Lord, we love you and thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. No doubt this morning here, today in this room, there are many people with great need. For some, it's a financial need. The cost of living continues to rise at a rate that, quite frankly, your wages can't keep up with. For some, it's a relational need. You don't know how much longer your marriage is going to last. You don't know how you're going to continue to raise your kids. They seem out of control and you're not quite sure what to do. Maybe some in here this morning have broken relationships with loved ones because of a history of hurt from the past. For others, it's a physical need. You're tired of going to the doctor and hearing bad news. You're tired of waking up in the morning and your knees ache and your back's cracking. But what I want to remind you of this morning is that when your burdens overwhelm you, and when your needs begin to crush your soul, that Jesus calls out to us, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen, my goal this morning is simple. My goal is to remind and to exhort us to take our needs to Jesus. For those of us who have followed Christ for any time, this is not new or groundbreaking truth. 
but it's one that we continually need to jog to our memory, that we have a God that we can take our needs to. Over the past few weeks, as we've studied the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, we've gotten a firsthand view of the compassion and authority of Christ. Over and over again, we've seen how Jesus's compassion for suffering, compassion for hurting, works together with his power and authority to bring life change to those who seek him. And today's passage is no different. As we look at our text this morning, the first thing that we see is the manner by which we bring our need to Jesus. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins are forgiven. As word begins to spread that Jesus is back in Capernaum, this good news makes its way to the ears of one that is sick with the palsy. Or in other words, it was a man that was paralyzed. It was a paralytic. This was a man who was bedridden and paralyzed most likely in all of his limbs. A man who because of his condition was incapable of being self-sufficient. A man who was dependent on the grace and the compassion of others around him in order to daily survive. It was a man that was in great need. And while this man didn't have much and this man couldn't do much, the text tells us that this man did have four friends, which (laughs) really is a miracle before the miracle even happens. And whether this man calls his friends or his friends come to him because they've heard that Jesus is in town, we do not know. But what we do know is that they all believe that Jesus could meet the need that was present before them. So they go to their paralytic friend and they each grab a corner of his cot and they pick him up and they begin to march towards the house where Jesus is at. But as they get to the house where Jesus is, there's a little problem. The house is already full. There's no way that they can push their way through the crowd. There's no way that they're going to get in through the front door in order to get their friend to Christ. I'm going to share with you all one of my... uh, flaws this morning i don't know if anybody in here like me hates waiting all right my wife gets irritated with me she'll be hungry and we'll go to get something to eat and if i pull into the driveway and the line is around the building i'm pulling right back out of the driveway (laughs) and we're going to go find somewhere else to eat but i could imagine as this group of friends make it to the house of jesus and they recognize that they couldn't get in They looked at each other with determination and they said, we didn't come this far to leave. They didn't come and see this obstacle in front of them and say, well, maybe tomorrow Jesus can meet our friend's need. No, their friend was in great need and they decided that they were going to do whatever was necessary to get him to Jesus. I can imagine them looking at each other desperate, trying to figure out what to do. When one of them gets a glimmer in his eye and he begins to point his finger to the stairs that lead up to the roof of the house. 
during these days, Palestinian homes were low to the ground, and they would have had a stairway that led to the roof. The roof would have been flat. It would have been made of branches that were intertwined together in twigs, and then they would have took clay mud and stuck it and packed it on top of those branches. And sometimes they would then take clay tiles and lay the clay tiles over the roof. The roof was, was really, it was kind of like a hangout spot. It was a place for entertainment. It was a place to go and relax and sit down. It was almost like a deck that we have today. So these four friends carry their friend on his cot and make their way over to the staircase and they begin to climb to the roof. And once they get on the roof, they set their buddy down to the side and these four friends get on their hands and knees and take their fingers and begin to dig out the roof. Now, I just want you to imagine that you are in the house below. (laughs) Just think about it as you see dust start to fall from the roof and it's getting in your hair and you're looking around like what in the world is going on and then as you look up you see these grimy little fingers starting to break through. You hear branches snapping and these twigs that are breaking. You know, this scene really leaves a lot to the imagination. I don't know, I kind of wonder if, as they started digging, if the crowd that was below, like, were they sitting there just quiet in such awe and amazement, like, what in the world is going on? Or were they down there, like, screaming, like, like I, I can just imagine the owner of the house. Right? I mean, somebody's digging at your roof. I mean, there's, there's no way he's just quiet. They're probably screaming, like, what in the world are you all doing? You guys need to come down. Stop destroying my property. How about the hole they made? Did they just make a hole big enough to drop their friend down vertically? Or did they try to make a hole that was big enough so that they could lay the whole cot down? You know, we don't really know, but it leaves a lot of interesting questions. Can you imagine the awkwardness? As the hole finally gets big enough and you stick your head in and you look down and everybody's just staring at you. And then finally, when they got this hole big enough, they dropped the cot down in front of Jesus. They had come all this way. They had done all this work and they begin to lower their friend down towards Christ. And the text tells us that Jesus looks at them and the Bible says, seeing their faith declares to the paralytic that is lying in front of him, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Understand that Jesus makes this public declaration of forgiveness to communicate to everybody that was watching that the need that they believed was the greatest on This man, his paralysis, his inability to walk was not his greatest problem. But rather this greatest, this man's greatest need was the same need that everybody in there had, even those that were able to walk. And that was a need of forgiveness of their sins and restoration back to a holy, loving father. I find it interesting that Jesus says, seeing their faith. That is that not only did the man paralyzed have great faith, but also all four friends that carried him and that went through great measures to get him to Jesus had this strong confidence that Jesus was able to do something for their buddy. Listen, I wonder if 
Any of us in here this morning have friends like that? The kind of friend that when times get tough, they don't bring you a bottle, but rather they bring a prayer rug. The kind of friends that when you begin to veer off the side of the road, rather than coming and joining you and saying, yeah, let's go have fun, they come and they try to steer you back towards Christ's likeness. They try to get, they try to send you back to the Savior. Even more so, I wonder if we are friends like that. I wonder if I'm a friend like that, a friend where I have a relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ where iron sharpens iron, a friend who is so faith-filled, a friend that is determined that those around me that I love that are hurting, those around me that are in great need, that I'm going to do anything in my power to get them to the one who can help them. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says, but there were certain of the scribes, these are the religious leaders, sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Upon hearing Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness of sins, the religious leaders get hot. They're offended. They begin to reason in their heart. They begin to have this internal dialogue going on in their heart and their mind where essentially what they're saying about Jesus is, who do you think you are? Not like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus calmed the storm in amazement. They said, what kind of man is this that can even calm the winds and the waves, but rather like a parent when a child gets out of place and you look at them and you're like, who do you think you are? You see, the religious leaders were asking the right questions, but they were coming to the wrong conclusions. It was true when they said that only God can forgive sins. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? Isaiah 43.25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. But what is not true is their accusation of blasphemy. One of the major beliefs and arguments opposing Christianity is this idea that Jesus was not God. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses today claim themselves to be Christians, yet they deny the deity of Christ. They deny that Jesus was God. Muslims today, if you have a conversation with a Muslim, they will affirm that Jesus was real. They will say that Jesus was a great prophet, that he is a man that we should look up to, but they will tell you that he was not God. Yet as we look at this text, what we find is that Jesus himself claimed to be God. Listen, and the Jewish leaders understood that. By claiming to forgive sins, Jesus was claiming equality with God. So unless Jesus spoke the truth, he was blasphemed. Blasphemy was one of the greatest sins that a person could commit. Blasphemy was disrespect, blatant, purposeful disrespect against God. In the Old Testament, the punishment for blasphemy was death. 
And as the religious leaders began to question Jesus in their hearts, Jesus as God knew even their thoughts. And Jesus looks at them. They haven't even verbalized anything, but rather he, he sees into their hearts and he says to them, why do you question my authority to forgive sins? And then Jesus follows up with an interesting question. Look at verse 9. I'll go to the end of verse 8 first. So Jesus says, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Is it easier to tell someone their sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say to this man that is paralyzed, get up, take up your bed and skip out of here? Obviously, the answer is that it's easier to tell someone that their sins are forgiven because forgiveness is an invisible action. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. The title Son of Man is the name that is used most by Jesus referring to to himself. So often when we hear Son of Man, we may be led to think that Jesus is just reminding us of his humanity. But when you go and look at Daniel chapter 7, what you find is that the title Son of Man is not a humble claim of Jesus's humanity, but again, it is a declaration of his authority and deity. The Son of Man in Daniel 7.13 is the heavenly figure that represents the saints of the Most High. He is the one that comes in the clouds of heaven, bringing the kingdom of God that comes to judge humans. Look at, verse, look at the rest of verse 10 with me. So he said to the sick of the palsy, in order to prove that he was the Son of Man, to prove that he was this authoritative figure that was coming to bring the kingdom of God, I say unto you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way into your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it in this fashion. One commentator noted that Jesus healed the man visibly to prove that this invisible act of forgiving sins was also effective. It's hard to believe that Jesus could blaspheme God in one breath and then heal with God's power in the next. His healing demonstrated that he had the authority from God both to heal and to forgive sins. So you look at this text, not only are we shown the manner by which we carry our burdens to the Lord, but here in verse 6 through 12, it becomes abundantly clear why we take our needs to Jesus. Simply put, we can confidently take our needs to Jesus with determined faith because he is God. As we close this morning, I want to just take a step back from this passage. And I want to share with you two questions that arise from this text that I began to ask myself and that I wrestled with this 
week in questions that I believe are worthy of your own examination. The first question is, how desperate am I for Jesus? How desperate am I to get to Jesus? I mean, really, how bad do you want to be close to Christ? Like the four friends, am I willing to do whatever it takes to get near the Savior? Do I want him bad enough that I'm willing to risk friendships, that I'm willing to risk comforts, that I'm willing to maybe even one day risk jail and persecution and death? But then also, if I claim to desperately want Jesus, if I say, man, I, I want Jesus, I, like these four friends, like this paralyzed man wanted Jesus, I then have to ask my, myself the question, is my life indicative of a wholehearted pursuit of Jesus? You know, it's easy to say one thing, and then you've got to put it into action. These friends had faith, they were desperate for Jesus, but then that rolled into action as they did whatever it took to get to the Savior. You know, often we talk about how much we love Jesus, how desperate we are for Jesus, yet our lives tell a different story. And if I claim that Jesus is everything, am I willing to do whatever it takes to get close to the Savior day by day? Listen, let's get practical here. I'm not even talking about the hard things. But what about the easy ones? Am I willing to put my phone down for 30 minutes a day to read scripture? Am I willing to not wait to pray until I'm in the bed cozy and comfy so that 20 seconds into my prayer with Almighty God, I fall asleep? Am I willing to miss sports events and extracurricular activities in order to prove to my family and show my children and for my own edification, the importance of the gathering of believers. This group of friends believed in their hearts that Jesus was the answer. And they didn't let anything get in the way to closeness to him. Listen, they were willing to risk jail. They were willing to risk public disdain as they stood on top of this roof, destroying this man's property and because of their faith and determination to be near him jesus rewarded them just as he will you and then the second and i believe more important question to ask ourselves this morning is whether or not we trust jesus's answer to our felt needs that was a mouthful i'll say it again we need to ask ourselves the question do I trust Jesus' answer to my felt needs? Listen, the danger of coming to Jesus with a heart of faith is that he may give you what you need rather than what you want. When the paralytic came to Jesus, he wanted physical healing, but Jesus gave him spiritual. Listen, because Jesus is God, Jesus knows what is best for you. I can imagine the frustration of these friends as they look down at Jesus and they see their buddy who is obviously in need of physical help and Jesus says to him your sins are forgiven 
As the Pharisees balk in his authority to forgive sins, these friends might have began to wonder, does he not see him lying there on the bed? Does he not know our purpose in coming all this way? Does he not know what we went through to bring our need to his feet? Is he even able to heal? And if we are not careful in our own pain, oftentimes we can be tempted to wonder the same thing. Why, Lord? Why sickness? Why cancer? Why depression? Why are you allowing this to happen to me, Lord? I'm bringing this to your feet. Do you not know what my need is? Listen, and while Jesus wants us to bring our burdens to him, that is the point of this text. He does. He calls us. He says, come unto me. I will give you rest. What I want to remind you is that the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus will remove your cancer. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus will end your depression. The good news of the gospel is not even that Jesus will give you exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think, but rather the good news of the gospel is that Jesus will forgive you all of your sins forever. Listen, so the question you've got to ask yourself, is that enough? Is Jesus enough? Is forgiveness enough? Is spiritual healing enough? If Jesus never met my need, would Jesus still be good? And the reason I ask this is not to discourage you here this morning, but rather it's quite the opposite. I want to stir your heart's affection to what Christ has already done for you. Listen, our hopes should not be found in physical healing, but rather in forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. The forgiveness of sins accomplished through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the greatest miracle that Jesus can perform in your life. Listen, it's the miracle of the gospel that I, a wretched sinner, unworthy, undeserving, nothing to offer to God, would look down on me and have mercy and offer me forgiveness and reconciliation to himself. Warren Wearsby said that forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. He says it meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. In our lives, we need someone with power, not just over disease and demons, but we need someone with power over sin and death. Since 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, looked down on man in his terrible state, his separation from God, and he came to earth and took on human flesh. He was born in a manger. He lived a perfect and sinless life, yet he died a sinner's death on the cross. Listen, Jesus was hung high. He was stretched wide. He had nails put in his hands and feet. He had a crown of thorns placed on his head. A spear plunged into his side on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sins of all mankind standing in my place and standing in your place. But the cross was not the end. 
Because three days later, after laying in a borrowed tomb, Jesus walked out of that grave, conquering death, hell, and the grave. And listen to me now, because of the cross, for all those who trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins, you can be encouraged to know that your suffering, you can be encouraged to know that your trials, that your tribulations, that your felt needs do not have the last word. Cancer does not have the last word. Depression does not have the last word. Broken relationships do not have the last word. Pain does not have the last word. Heart attacks, hospital rooms, hospice care do not have the last word. Listen, death itself does not even have the last word because death has been defeated by the Son of Man. Today, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, beckoning, calling you, offering you life abundantly. Every head